0: Namotasa bhikkhu vato arahato samasam bhutasa. Namotasa bhikkhu vato arahato samasam bhutasa. Namotasa arahato samasam bhutasa. Uttang damang sang kamnamasa. I was wondering why there's a uh, few of the normal people here tonight and then I realised it. it's uh, a bank holiday Monday and people have probably gone off somewhere nice warm and sunny, which you can't blame them really. Anyway, there's some of you here this evening and um, since last week so I, re- I received a letter, somebody wrote me a helpful letter offering some comment on, on on these evening meetings that we have. And as I said last week, it's useful to have feedback about what works and what doesn't work. So i reiterate that invitation. If people do want to get in touch and say what they find helpful, then I'm happy to hear. This person was saying that, uh, that whenever they come on a Sunday night, they're always looking forward to hearing a Dhamma talk. i, I it, it is as I said helpful to hear that because I hear myself all the time and, and quite frankly, I get tired of hearing me talk uh it's you know it's just going on and on and he's always saying the same things and and most of what I come out with in an evening like this is is all fairly obvious, and i I really can't understand why you know you want to hear me go on about it all um. But I take this person at their word and and and, and uh, but trust that uh, you do find it useful and helpful and so I am happy to um, spend time this evening uh, leading a a uh, shared contemplation on Dhamma themes i'll also uh, just to mention that in this letter there was a suggestion that that when, uh, or if, uh, I'm not feeling uh, inclined, inspired, or up to giving a talk, that perhaps we could listen to a tape of me. <laughs> In response to that, I just for your information, I'd like to say that I, I feel um, that the puja that we have here uh, is something for embodied human beings. It's it's something that the whole body mind engages in as a as a ritual. And I feel quite strongly about this. And now that's not to say that that in different situations I'm against, you know, listening to Dhamma talks by tape. In fact I'm a great advocate of it and as you know I, I put quite a bit of effort into setting up the various websites so that these talks are talks by other senior monks and nuns are easily downloadable and available and so on. But in a puja situation, where it's a a, a ritual, a collective ritual, the introduction of of technology, I think, has to be, in my view, has to be handled very carefully, very sensitively. I'm a great fan of uh, Marshall McLuhan, that Canadian 60s philosopher who, those of you that read the interview in the recent article in the Forest Sanger Newsletter... Would have read my response to the question about how do you feel about technology and I was quoting Marshall McLuhan who said, amongst other interesting things that the medium is the message and so the medium by which we transmit Dhamma I feel uh, has a lot to do with how the Dhamma is received and understood and appreciated and so uh, engaging in technology like tape recorders and and so on uh, that medium, I feel, has a different effect and not something that I would feel is congruent with the ritual of the puja. So that's just for your information about why I'm not keen on introducing take talks into this situation. Uh, if n- nobody is available or up to or available to give a talk during the puja, well, then all of us together engage in the whole body mind activity of investigating how that affects us. That's Dhamma practice. Yeah. Now, having said all that, um, now that uh, Kusala House is, is available as a, as a lovely space, uh, for those of you that do come to visit on a Sunday night or any other night uh, who want to organize meetings and, and occasions for getting together, reading books, uh, discussing the, the suttas, uh, listening to tapes, in that context, down there, that, I absolutely support that. I'm very keen on that. Uh, and, and it may well happen that during our winter retreat of three months, where uh, neither Ajahn Abhinandra nor myself are available to, to offer a Dhamma reflection in the evening, that you might choose to organize yourselves to meet down there. And I think that would be a, a great idea, uh, a way of finding how to nourish uh, those uh, very important spiritual needs. So that's just a little bit on um, how I feel about using technology in uh, evening puja and, and why. So today is the new moon day of May, and uh, two weeks' time it'll be full moon, the Waysaka Puja, and we'll have um, the annual ritual of celebrating the birth, enlightenment and passing away of uh, our teacher, the, the Lord Buddha. And um, I'm very pleased that, that this ritual uh, works for us. It's not something that I would have necessarily expected to, to take root in our culture. Um, but rituals do have a particular power. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that there's enough uh, appreciation, sensitivity, understanding of the power of ritual uh, amongst us collectively to to want to engage in these things, like in this way of meeting on a Sunday night. Yes, there are other ways of meeting. We you meet for tea and sit in a circle and and chat about things. But here we have this formalized ritual way of doing it. And and likewise, yes, we think the Buddha is great and and uh, we have his books up on the top shelf, and we keep the Buddha image dusted, and and so on. But uh, we also take time out once a year to really make a point of celebrating the fact that the Buddha existed. We use as ritual coming together and engaging in a shared formal activity uh, of devotion to the teacher. And it can be very useful in practice to spend time uh, contemplating the place of ritual, to to engage rituals mindfully and to see how they affect us. This morning was the fortnightly ritual, uh, the new moon day, of the recitation of the Patimoka rule. Here, as, as you're probably all familiar, the Two thousand five hundred year old tradition of of monks meeting every fortnight to recite the rule and uh, Abinndo is very fluent and manages to do this recitation um, with varying degrees of accuracy this week was very accurate. I think it depends on how much work he's been doing and how many chemicals i don't mean illegal i mean you know I mean like paint and wood preservative, and he's been sniffing on the building site. It does seem to have an effect on him, but anyway, today he was uh, almost word perfect, and uh, and Venerable Nyanamoli sitting there with the book in front of him checking, because you're not allowed to read. You know, the recital reciter has to do it from memory. In parley, two hundred twenty-seven rules in parley, and it was the slightest mistake, Nyanamoli pulls him up and corrects him, and he has to start again. So. And so these rituals, I've been doing them for what is it, thirty? three years something like that, um now and uh, every fortnight for thirty three years, an occasional one where I wasn't with other monks and and sometimes it's true that I get you know, I said, What's the point? You know, I've had times of sitting in the putty monks, Oh it's okay for the junior monks, what do I have to put up with this for? My knees are killing me. And so seedless thoughts pass through my mind. But this morning when we were doing this, I it was quite the opposite, I just think how good it is to have this yeah there's all on all sorts of levels, just this meeting together, monks and down the back, the novice, and then the Anagarika comes in and and this to be aware that you know we were doing this at nine thirty in the morning here and all round the the Buddhist world, there are monks doing this for two thousand five hundred years. There have been monks engaging this ritual of renewal. That's what it is. It's a ritual of renewal. Every fortnight, we get together before the recitation of the rule, and we acknowledge to each other whether we've transgressed the training. You know, we engage in this training for the sake of purification, and if we don't meet the mark you know, across the boundaries, well, we want to make a clear statement of ourselves. It's not like asking for confession. It's not confessing. Asking for forgiveness. But it's rather asking somebody else, you know, one monk to one monk, you say, just, could you just listen to what I have to say about my, where I'm at in the training? And it's a, it's a great ritual. You, know, you could take it literally and say, well, I haven't broken any rules. I won't go through this ritual. Today. No, I don't have to go to the Patimoka recitation because, you know, my, I'm good enough. Well, there was a monk in the time of the Buddha who had that thought and uh, he was actually, he was, a, he was an Arahant. Finished his work. Completely finished his work. Perfectly enlightened being, who thought, "Well, I can't break any of the rules because, uh, you know, I can't be impure." And the Buddha knew this monk was having this thought and went and told him off. Said, "That's not a helpful thought. That's not a helpful way to behave. Uh, You should still go because of the benefit it brings to the community." And so this ritual has a, a very harmonizing effect on the community. It's got nothing to do with whether you like to do it or not. Now, that's one of the things about ritual. It really helps bring up into focus the momentum, the force of my way. Because, you know, as surely all of us know, the force of my way can be very, very convincing. It can be so, sound so wise, you know, so insightful, so sensitive. You know, I just, I just don't feel, you know, like, I just don't feel comfortable I don't feel ready to engage in this ritual with these people at the moment. I don't feel at one with them. Well, that sounds all right, sort of. But we can be fooling ourselves with what I feel comfortable and don't feel comfortable about. Mm -hmm. Often, usually, in fact, it's probably me that doesn't feel comfortable. And our commitment to this training is not a commitment to making me, that's deluded me, happy. And so... Being willing to endure discomfort, uh, inconvenience. as uh, part of ritual too sometimes. Yeah. Learning how to bow. Learning how to bow. In the beginning, most of us come to this training without conditioning from our culture where thou shalt not bow down to graven images, let alone other senior monks. Yeah. And it uh, goes deeply conditioned within us, individuals, strong, independent people, bowing down as a sign of weakness. That's our conditioning, could bring up such perception. But, maybe it's your experience, certainly it's mine, that if we just put up with that and just say, well that's a conditioned reaction, lots of other people have been bowing, it doesn't seem to have made them all weak and stupid, and so I'll just try it. And so you You have that feeling, you don't deny that feeling, you have that feeling, put that feeling to one side, and you still bow, and then little by little you see more and more clearly how conditioned that feeling is, and that there may be another feeling starts to come through that actually is part of the whole bowing ritual. We're not bowing because we want to look at something on the floor, we're bowing because we know that the opposite of bowing, which is puffing our chest out and holding our head up and saying, I don't need you, I'm okay mate, doesn't take us where we want to go so we willingly lower ourselves in the face of that which symbolizes the state of freedom beyond such ego needs and so little by little we start to feel this other energy manifesting which is a sense of gladness that this conditioned I is able to do this I can remember the feeling that I started to have after a while of bowing. That just, it feels very good to not have to stand up straight and say, I don't need you. To be able to bow feels good. Actually, it feels better than sitting bolt upright and saying, I don't need to bow. So sometimes with rituals, we need to engage them for a while before we uh, get the feeling. And sometimes, you know, we get it wrong with rituals. That's also important to, to bear in mind and uh, to be careful. So we're careful as we, we use them. Uh, I, can, um, I was thinking earlier today about how when we first came to, to Britain from Thailand, we had this bowing ritual at the end of puja uh, that uh, we would bow three times, to the Buddha, and then, as was done in the northeast of Thailand, the senior monk would turn around and put his hands in Anjali, and all the monks would bow to the teacher. Where you think, well, that's a okay, sort of beautiful thing to do. But then, as soon as the monks have finished bowing, that's when the nuns and the women and the lay people would bow to the teacher. Meanwhile, the teacher just turns his back on everybody and starts chatting with the monks. Well, that may, I don't know, it may or may not, I have trouble actually understanding how that's even got a place in Thai society, but that, if that's how it happens there, that's how it happens there. But we recognised quite quickly after being here that that wasn't something that we wanted to do, and it was something that grated it, it really it didn't fit that ritual or that way of using the ritual, and so we wanted to change it. But how do you go about changing it? That was also interesting. On that occasion, I can remember... One particular senior monk, he just decided that he wasn't going to do it that way. And so when uh, he told the nuns that they should bow with the monks, that uh, they should all bow together, and he would sit there with his hands in anjali and the monks and nuns would bow together. Well, that was fine. It made him very popular with the nuns. Uh, But then when another monk came along who didn't know about the, the way he had changed the ritual and he didn't do it that way, well, that made him very unpopular and so there was conflict and he said oh actually rituals are powerful yeah. uh, and so if we're going to change them we also need to be very careful and and so on that occasion we had a meeting about it and said, well, it turns out we all agree that we don't want to uh, we don't want to do it this way we want to do it that way and so we, we all agreed on and so then we all changed it at the same time and after that it was much better thank goodness so how we pick up rituals how it affects us being willing to accept that sometimes we get it wrong with them. you know, They're powerful. And, uh, and if we're getting them wrong, then you can cause a lot of offence, a lot of hurt. Just everyday common garden variety uh, rituals of, like, saying hello. In New Zealand, when you, like, if you're a dignitary, like the Dalai Lama, when the Dalai Lama uh, went to New Zealand... And he was, you know, he's a a leader of his people and the Maori people there wanted to receive him in a very dignified and uh, proper way. And so they performed this ritual that they do whereby the leader of the tribe comes forward and he puts the spear down on the ground in front of the the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is standing there with all his his, uh, retinue and and, everything. And then uh, there's this thing goes on, the chief comes forward, puts the spears down in the Dalai Lama. Oops, there's a mistake here. Buddhist monks don't pick up spears, let alone guns or bows and arrows. Uh, Buddhist monks don't handle killing weapons. But if when you're offered this ritual, you don't pick it up, actually that's a declaration of war. <laughs> so is, uh, well, what to you do? <laughs> So there was a little, little negotiation there, and uh, fortunately, there wasn't misunderstood, and uh, the, the Maori people were flexible enough. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a tough one, though, because it's a very powerful gesture, and it's an honour to welcome somebody like this. And if it's not received, it has a serious consequence. So, but they sorted it out anyway, and, uh, and also uh, I imagine Viridamo telling me how uh, in New Zealand. Well, I know from my own background that there's a way of greeting when you go on the Marai. Um, he's an abbot of a monastery, and and the elders of the tribe they greet you by rubbing noses with you. You know, it's called a Hongi. You, know, you go like, you you rub noses, and and the 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 ha, it's called, or the breath of life is mingled as you do this. You rub noses together. And so this this elder, the the, the senior woman. Um, that the community creates Ajahn Viridhamo by approaching him to give him a hongi and rub his nose which uh, Ajahn Viridhamo just accorded with conditions without compromising principles and it's <laughs> just pity nobody got a photograph of it <laughs> so sometimes as we pick up rituals you want to also know what you're getting yourself in for <laughs> and uh, they're powerful know how to, you know, you, you become skilled at them and, and how to use ways of greeting and so on. And, and it's interesting the, um, the different ways people greet each other. In England, of course, we say, how are you, is the thing. and Whereas in Thailand, they, uh, they say, which means, where are you going? And I used to when I first went to Thailand. I think, where are you going? So I said, well, mind your own business. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not your business where I'm going. <laughs> well, I, I, was, that took me a while before I found out that's just like saying how are you. And in China, you know, in China they say, have you eaten yet? And they're not the least bit interested in whether you've eaten yet. they just that's like saying how are you. And uh, so you know, people are different. The uh, interestingly, the uh, the uh, the Arabic way. This is very interesting. The Arabic way of greeting is "peace upon you," and you know what the Hebrew way of greeting is: "peace upon you." Huh? So maybe in that case they should take it literally. Perhaps they should really contemplate their ritual and see the the meaning behind it. Or, or in this country, isn't it? We we shake hands, and you know what's behind that. Of course, is that's the sword hand. That's the, the hand that you would otherwise use with the dagger or the sword, and when you offer it to somebody you're offering fearlessness or harmlessness. And so these rituals have their place, can be very useful, can be very harmful if we blindly uh, follow them, being intimidated by them, not a mindful relationship with rituals. Mm. Heedless adherence to them or heedless... The dismissing them, both reactions to rituals, uh, I would see as is, is, is rather unfortunate because there can be a lot of benefit in them. As the thing with bowing, I, you know, I've, I've found myself it's as a, as a wonderful thing. I don't care whether anybody's watching or not. I bow on my kuti I bow a lot. You know, I like got a little shrine and I regularly bow because it helps. It's good. It, it works. And and. Uh, Somebody else might think that by engaging in in rituals, that you're just enslaved by them, but they don't know where you're coming from. Some, some Buddhists, Western Buddhists, read the teachings, and they they see the first stage of of uh, of realization of the path is uh, sotapanna, and one of the one of the uh, fetters, one of the defilements, that is. That is uh, eradicated at that point is a sila pata paramasa, which generally translates as attachment to rites and rituals. Yeah. Literally, it's sila, which is like rules, yeah. sila. patta yeah. is actually rituals and things like you can, like the things we were talking about, things that you can engage with. But paramasa, this word paramasa, has the, the meaning of, of like fondling or playing with. So, sila paramasa is a misuse of rituals. It's like using. It's not like. It's not like. Okay, once you realise the path, you're going to throw away all conventions. Mm-hmm. You're going to dismiss conventions as useless. But uh, it's more the case of of seeing the place, seeing the function of them. So you're not playing with them. You're not projecting onto rites and rituals. Uh, Value that's not really there. Again, the obvious one is where we bow to the Buddha image and and then there's the the impression that people might have that you're enslaved to this this, uh, idol that you're worshipping. And there is that way of relating to the form of bowing. But there can also be the attitude of recognising that this... The pain of being identified with this rigid ego structure is something that I really want to get out of. I don't want to be limited by this habit, by this uh, false identity. And so any skillful means is going to help remind me that this is a false identity. Believing in me. Mm. Believing in personality. Believing in rites and rituals. Believing that they have some inherent power that's going to free me or save me. Recognizing that all those beliefs are entrapment. And that what we really want is how to be free from that. And so one can engage the rituals with that motivation. Mm. So the Buddha image symbolizes the possibility of freedom, that human beings can can be free. So when we do engage in rituals, uh, there's always a chance that they're going to become perfunctory, and we could react if we see ourselves becoming perfunctory with them and just say, oh, well, we're not going to do that anymore. But it's not the case that we have to always be inspired every time we engage in a ritual. There's something about allowing ourselves to engage with them in a way that just becomes like second nature. And and the more we use them, the more we relax into them. The more familiar we become with them. And then another energy can start to flow. You can say the same words over and over again, like at the end of the meditation, you say, may I abide in well-being? And freedom from affliction and freedom from hostility. And I mean we say this every time all the time, every Sunday and and over and over again. And do we really mean it? Well maybe not every time we say it, we mean it. But it what it does is it etches a pathway in our consciousness. It etches a a thought form in our consciousness. May I abide in well being and freedom from affliction. And then you know, one day one day we find ourselves saying it with presence, with, 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 with feeling. May I abide in well-being and really mean it? May I be well? May I be well? And it can go very deep. And, and, and yes, it's a ritual. Yes, we can become habitual with it. But yes, it still has a function in training. And I'm suggesting this because we're not necessarily all that well educated in how to use rituals, and we can like them or dislike them. That's not the point. Liking and disliking rituals is not the point, but rather we engage with rituals as skillful means for letting go of this false identity that we suffer from. Liking and disliking is something that we need to be very careful about with rituals. You know, I remember when Master Shunhua came to visit the, uh, the late abbot of the city of 10,000 Buddhas and in America came over with a large gathering of his monks and nuns and, and they were at, uh, we were together at Amarwati and, and, uh, we, we did our chanting of the Pritas and, and they did their chanting, whatever it was. And, and afterwards some of their sangha commented to the teacher how how, how wonderful they found our chanting of the prittas. And, and could they learn them and chant them too and uh, he just he scolded them he says don 't be silly he said, "You only want to chant them because you think they sound nice you know it 's just a matter of sensual pleasure, and that 's not why we 're chanting the Yeah, you know, the Buddha was very clear about this, you know there's a couple of brothers at one stage came to him and asked to translate or to you know translate. Record the teachings and, and encode the teachings in, in verse and in lyrical verse. It was beautiful to hear. And, uh, and it was just, no, that's not, that's getting distracted by the sensual appearance of the recitation of the teachings is a fault. In fact, it's one of the signs that, that the teachings are deteriorating. As mentioned in, in the future, people will only listen to or pay attention to the sensual side of the Dhamma. And that's the beginning of the end, and and you can see this now. And I, some I, some people have have questioned why I personally uh, re- resist or reject the idea of of, of having icons of, of other traditions up just casually placed around the place, or like at people's houses. You sometimes you'll see uh, Tibetan thunkas and and so on just stuck upon the wall as a piece of objet d'art and I've been critical of this, because those those images are icons. You know, that's part of, of a ritual language that carries a certain energy with it. It's part of a, a system and needs to be respected. And to get casual around these things is unfortunate. Or or the idea of chanting mantras from Tibetan mantras in, in the temple, which I know at one stage uh, used to happen and I was... I was uh, critical of it and people wanted to know why I said, Well, it's not that I don't like it in fact I do like it but it's not part of this system and if you start mixing these rituals it's, like, it's just like mixing any other language it, 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 you know, it can lead to confusion if you don't really understand the language it's not appropriate to just treat it as something to play with sometimes we like the pujas, sometimes we like the rituals sometimes we dislike them But the important thing to do is to remember that the reason that we're engaging in them at all is because we trust there's a possibility of going beyond, being defined by our habits of liking and disliking. It is so tedious to always be pushed around by liking and disliking. What we see, hear, smell, taste, touch and cognise, you know, all the activity of the the senses is endless uh, like uh, classically referred to as as specks of dust floating around in empty space if we know the empty space if we really know how to abide in the empty space then none of the dust is going to intimidate us but our tendency is to get intoxicated or blinded by the dust the gold dust you know we get too close to it. We love it. Yeah. The diamond dust, it sparkles, it's beautiful, and we get absorbed into it and we get lost into it. But if we get dust in our eyes, it doesn't matter what the dust is. If we get dust in our eyes, it, it obscures our scene. And so this is true with all the sense objects. Yeah. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touches and mental impressions. So. Including the ritual sense objects. Yeah. If we engage them without... The right kind of attention the right way, well, then they don 't work for us they don 't they 're not skillful means they become hindrances i 'm talking about it, but I should also point out that i I get you know I, I'm, I can get very intimidated by these things. I tell you when the, when you 've got a monk in the monastery who really doesn 't know how to chant and chant <coughs> you know, and it happens and and then they tell you, you know, when you comment, you say, uh, Do you think you could, uh, you know, find the right time, right place, right words, right motivation to offer some feedback? And and you say, Do you think you could, uh, you know, just listen a little bit more to the voices around you? And say, Well, I'm tone deaf. And uh, you say, Well, actually, tone deafness is a very rare disease. And said, so, Well, I've got it. say, <laughs> so, no, what you've got is lack of uh, training. It's just a matter of bringing mindfulness, to the ear and to your own voice and to paying attention and if they still dismiss you as something they just can't do well it just goes to show how attached I am to having pleasant harmonious chanting Uh, because I do find it very tedious when people don't make the effort I don't believe that you know most people most people are not uh, tone deaf it's just uh, what sadly what often happens in our culture is you get shamed very early on in life and I think this happens more for men than for women. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but I think women tend to be able to chant and tune better. Is that uh, not always? Uh, since they've stopped singing hymns in, cheer, in school, I think that's 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 uh, that's been a great loss. In in school, we used to always sing "Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise," and you know the real rip roaring, and "Jerusalem." Now that would really get you going. Uh, well, okay, some of the Storylines there were pretty, you know, were yeah. intelligence. But the, the learning how to sing was a good thing. I think it's a pity if the only place you sing is when you're drunk in the pub. Um, and so how do we get onto that? Uh, it's attachment to the <laughs> to the sensual aspect of rituals. Uh, that's not the point. And uh, Master Shun i making that point. I thought it was very daring of him. People don't generally come out and say those sort of things, but I think it's true. So if we have Buddha images up in our house, I think, as a Buddhist, I would recommend that you do put it in a suitable place. If people are not Buddhists and they've got Buddha images in the bathroom or in places that are less than uh, inspiring, well, that doesn't mean to say we have to get indignant about it. I think, uh, generally speaking, the Buddha image can can be uplifting to anybody, whenever they see it, wherever they see it. But as Buddhists, if we feel that the Buddha image is an object of, that inspires us, then to just use it uh, mindfully and wisely, that is to put it in a place whereby we feel that's respectful. Yeah. It, uh, the way we, The way we relate to a Buddha image determines whether we benefit in our relationship to the Buddha image. Yeah. And this is related to what I said before about the medium is the message. Yeah. The message is not just the information. That's what I like. You know, if we played tapes in here, yes, you could get information or read books. Yes, you could get information. But what, what the risk is that we default to the split-off part of our being which thinks that because we have a conceptual understanding of reality that we've got somewhere. This path of practice is a whole body-mind training. We can be very comfortable on our own in our room, in our meditation or reading Dhamma or whatever and really think that we, we are somebody, but when somebody stands on our foot or somebody dismisses us when we think we should be acknowledged and the the passions flare up and we say or do something that uh, we get heated and, 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 and suffer as a result. And say, well, actually, that's the truth of where we're at. So this split-off aspect of our being that, that can be uh, feeling that we really are somebody when in fact we're not, uh, is not something that, that needs to be encouraged. And, and so that's why I was saying that uh, it, the whole body-mind is engaged in this, this, this puja, this ritual, and 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 we create a context. We create a container. And if the c- creation of the container, the the context is suitable, then what takes place in that will be suitable. Yeah. And so, if our relationship with Buddha images is a casual one, just you know, put them up and use Buddha images ahead of a Buddha image as a end of a you know a bookend. You know, just keeping your books in place or something or using the head of a Buddha as a doorstop. I mean, people do that. Well, of course, it just becomes another thing, another just valueless thing, which you can do. I mean, the Buddha's not going to make a problem out of it, that's for sure. And no Buddhist is going to make any problem out of it, hopefully. But also, the person who's got the Buddha image is not going to get any benefit out of it. The thing is, if we we feel the Buddha image symbolises Dhamma, then we put it in a place and we relate to it in a way, in a manner, whereby the spirit of respect and devotion uh, can flow. So I would suggest that uh, with uh, all our rituals, uh, whatever we're engaging with and how we're engaging with them, they remember this, that it's, it's not just the ritual, where it came from, uh, what's taking place, but how we pick it up. Yeah. How we pick it up, yeah? with mindfulness, with sensitivity, feeling how it affects us, being aware of liking and disliking. And if we want to change it, you know, to be willing to uh, be patient, sometimes rituals do need to be changed. Sometimes they're disempowering. Sometimes they're not useful. Yeah. depends where they came from yeah. and what, what, what meaning is encoded in them. And yeah. my favourite teaching story about this, which I've told many times before, but I'll tell again, is talking about changing structures is the example of knocking down that wall in Chithurst House. And uh, it was uh, two big rooms and one wall in between them. Um, We wanted three smaller rooms. And so we wanted to just knock that wall down. Being careful, we we don't just heedlessly knock the wall down because you don't know, maybe it's a structural wall, maybe it's holding the roof up. So what do we do with that? Right along the bottom, you took all the plaster off along the bottom on both sides of the room, and then you can look right through to the other side of the room. Nothing. Wall to wall, pillar to pillar, right across the room, nothing. Just space. You can see right through to the other room. Oh, that's a good sign. So, well, you know, you never know. Those Victorians might have been tricky. Maybe they had some other structure. We better check at the top as well. So right from one pillar to the other pillar, take a layer across of a, a foot of plaster, and you look across, and you can see right across nothing. Well, that's very intelligent, isn't it? That's a really wise, skillful, intelligent way of, of preparing to dim- dismantle this wall. And so then the bhikkhus tell the Anagarikas, knock down the wall, and the bhikkhus go off and have a cup of tea. But what happened on this occasion was the Anagarikas did knock the wall down while the bhikkhus weren't there. And then when one bhikkhu sensibly came back, Ajahn came back, he um, very thankfully noticed that the whole roof of Chittas' house was beginning to sag and fall in. And quickly we got the props in place and jacked them up and, and saved the roof, which would have been, you know, I mean, it would have been a, a, a serious uh, disappointment um, if the whole roof of Chittas' house had collapsed. And thankfully, um, it didn't. Uh, what we didn't realise was those Victorians were very tricky and they had they had built a design whereby there was these cross beams, cross supports going pillar to pillar, just short of the top and just short of the bottom. And we didn't see it. We didn't know. We thought we were being clever. We thought, yeah, take it down. It's not a supporting wall. No problem. Well, this is how it can be with structures. You know, and Rituals are str- structures, psychic structures, part of a psychic language that we as human beings have evolved and are engaged with, and if we're going to change them then we need to be very, very patient and put up with the inconvenience of not having them how we like them for a good long while until we become until we become very, very familiar with them, very comfortable with them, very willing to engage them, and then, when we know it's not just coming from a place of preference well. I think perhaps we can trust our discernment. It's, uh, related to this is like the relationship that that I here have with uh, Reverend Master Daishin Morgan, the abbot over at Thrussell Hall Priory, just past Hexham, a uh, well-established and large Zen monastery, Soto Zen monastery over there. And uh, sometimes I'm asked, how come you don't have more regular visits? Why don't your monks and their monks get together? And um, people are puzzled. I've been asked this several times. And and I, I, I usually don't go into great detail, but uh, you know, I just say, oh, well, it's not necessary. Um, but actually, Master Daishina and myself, uh, we share the same understanding that it's great. He and I meet. We usually meet at least once a year, get together, drink tea. Usually we talk about, well, you know, I ask him how his sculpting's going. He's into sculpting stone and, and we share notes on sewage systems and, and, um, and what we're doing with old monks and nuns, you know, once they, once they go gaga and how do you deal with them and things like this, you know, interesting things. Like that. What we don't do is get into comparing rituals. Uh, until you're really familiar and really, until it's become, really become your second nature the ritual side of of a convention like this uh, can sometimes become um, an obstruction to communication and sometimes you would get younger people earlier in the training getting together and comparing notes and and what's behind it is a competing who's best who's got the best tradition and i don't find that was uh, when Master Duhan and I get together and and uh, and so we both feel very comfortable about it. But we also both agree that there's no need for the communities to get together. They're very happy doing what they're doing, and we're very happy doing what we're doing. And we know there's a mutual respect, and, and that's all that we need. So uh, how did I get on to this tonight? Oh, it's because uh, this morning we had our ritual of renewal, the Patimoka, at um, Every fortnight we get together, and whatever's happened over the last two weeks, uh, falling short of our commitment to training, we have a chance to acknowledge it. Just saying, "Well, that's it. Drop it. Begin again." Very helpful ritual. You know, as I was thinking this morning, how how fortunate! I just feel so fortunate to have something like that. And I would encourage people who don't have rituals, structures in their life, but feel that they'd like to create them. You know? Create them create your own rituals you know. rituals of renewal you know. uh, rituals in, in relationship. There are rituals that people invent, you know, like sending it uh, next week is uh, in New Zealand is Mother's Day. Yeah, it's a ritual, isn't it? And it's good. It's a very nice ritual. I, I just asked penny our office person here to make sure my mother gets a, a huge big bunch of fruit and uh, flowers and fruit. Because it's also two days before her birthday. Birthdays are another ritual, aren't they? Now, sometimes people will dismiss these things. Mother's Day, oh, it's all commercial, forget about it. Birthdays, oh, I can't be bothered, you know, I hate the thought of getting old. Well, I think birthdays are great. It's just an excuse to tell somebody you love them. Well, these days, I saw saw these cards. In America, uh, I read or heard that... uh, there's, despite the uh, rather serious downturn in the economy in the last year, there have been 12 million uh, cosmetic plastic surgery operations, 12 million in America. And now they have greeting cards that they send to each other. That, uh, you know, like this is one apparently, that I, well, I saw it, I read it. On the front it said, I was thinking about getting together to chew the fat, and then you open the side, and it says, but since you've had liposuction, I changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> It's an American ritual. (laughs) Anyway, on that point I'd like to uh, (laughs) say thank you for your attention, (laughs) dear one.